Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Revelation 21 became really sweet to me and ministered to me when I realized that there was sadness that can't be undone in this world. And this is what the vision that God gave to John that speaks to that. And we'll talk about it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The former things will have passed away. And He who was seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words and I pray that you'd make them sweet to our hearts and they just wouldn't be an encouraging sentiment, but they would be grounded uh, deeply in our hearts, sown deeply so that they begin to actually structure our understanding of reality and we would see that the hope we have that you would make all things new is guaranteed and sure. And when we see the resurrected Jesus and know that he conquered death, that that would comfort our souls and change us as people. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so here's our big point tonight, and the point is this. It's actually, we're picking up where we left off last week, which is this. What you believe about the future is what informs you and makes you who you are today. And by way of example, one pastor used this example to get at that. That our future, what you believe about the future, even if you don't think about the future informs who you are today. And he said this, imagine two men are thrown into prison and are given 10 years of hard labor. And as they're thrown into prison, as they receive their sentence and on their way to prison, one man discovers that his wife and children had been killed. Another man on his way to prison about to serve his 10 years of hard labor found out that his wife and children had been spared. Now he never saw them for the next 10 years, but he had a picture of them. Uh, and he went through that next 10 years always assured that he would be united with the one that he loves. The question is this. Two men under the exact same circumstances but believe fundamentally different things about their future changes them, right? What would those two men, how would they be different, right? One only has despair, Right? The other one has something to look forward to. They both have to go through the same grueling time period together, through the same difficulty, through the same relationships, through the same trials. But what they believe about the future completely changes who they are in those moments. One has nothing to live for, and we begin to construct a life. Well, what does a life look like if you have nothing to live for? We can imagine that, right? It's a life governed mostly by appetite, things like that. The other one is going to be reunited with the one that they love. So how do they live? They live with resilience, Right? There's, still, there's still a ton of sadness, but there's resilience in the midst of sadness. And they live a life hoping to honor the one that they love. Right? So that they reunited with the one that they love. They can say, here's the life. Here's how you kept me alive. And here's the life I show you in return. 
right? We are hope-shaped beings. We are hope-shaped beings. We are shaped by whatever hope we hold out. If we don't even hold out a hope, that also shapes us. So to not make a decision about what you believe about the future actually still shapes who we are here and now. And the, there are a couple of choices, there are a couple of ways we could kind of talk about. If, if you think, I don't have thoughts about my eternal hope or about my eternal future, that means then you live a life with no thought to eternal hope or eternal future. See, that informs how we live now as well. And that goes a lot of different ways. That could be a life that's really, really fun, right? Because it's, there's nothing beyond. There's no uh, greater sense of justice or anything like that. Um, but it also could be really despairing, right? It could be very dark uh, to live a life without a belief that there's anything beyond, that there's anything at the end. And a lot of times, the life of really, really fun and a life of great despair actually can reside in the same person, both sentiments. So despair could be an option. Another option is optimism. And optimism is, I don't know, but maybe things will turn out for good. And what the life of optimism uh, kind of leads to is you have to diversify your portfolio, which is, I'm optimistic that things could be good, but they might not be. So I'm going to do it and try to be a little good, maybe a little religious, maybe a little moral, pay some homage to something good, some sense of justice and doing the right thing. But also I'm going to do a little bad just in case my optimism is ill-founded. Right? You've got to diversify your portfolio if you're an optimist. Scripture, the Christian story, doesn't traffic in either one of those ideas. Despair or optimism. Hope in the Bible is not optimism. Uh, it doesn't traffic in optimism. Hope in the Bible is always assurance. It's hope in the sense of being assured. The historical reality of the resurrection, that in the middle of history, Jesus actually walked out of the grave and conquered death, is there, it's given by God into history to assure His people of the resurrection. And when you begin to relate in the resurrection this way, it completely changes you. What I want you to see, and what we're going to talk about for a couple of minutes, is that we are hope-shaped creatures. We are all being shaped by whatever hope that we have. So what is that hope? And then we're going to talk about how it shapes us. Two points about what it is. And the first thing is this. Resurrection hope is not something you expect. Resurrection hope is physical. Resurrection hope is physical. See, there are two errors we make, uh, or we're prone to make. One thing is secular naturalism, right? There's no creator, there's no grand design, there's no redemption, says to be human is simply to be a physical body, right? That's the conclusion. All you are is you're the physical. And that produces a kind of life, right? If there's nothing more and all you are, all we are is the physical, that produces a kind of futurelessness life in us, right, here and now. And we can imagine and construct the kind of life that we would live, right, if there was nothing more. If all you were, if all it meant to be human was to be physical. You can kind of imagine it like this. Uh, if you're an athlete, if you have nothing to train for, it really jacks up your training, Right? If you have a competition, if you're training for a marathon or a 10K or a CrossFit competition or a, a, any kind of athletic event, it focuses your training, gives you a lot of discipline. It actually gives you the capacity to go through a lot of suffering, do hard things, make difficult choices. Right? But all, if you, once you leave the realm of athletic competition, right? I'm 38, I have now left the realm of athletic competition, uh, the ability to discipline my appetite, what I eat, to work out when I want to work out. It's just kind of haphazard. I kind of have these instincts, 
of wanting to be a certain type of person but no reason to because I have nothing to look forward to, right? So secular naturalism says your body and we're a body and nothing else. But there's another error too, an error that I'm going to call super spiritualism that some Christians misunderstand the Bible about but also a lot of Eastern religions also teach and that is what you fundamentally are, what it means to be human is to be spirit, right? Um... That uh, your eternal, if, if secular naturalism says your eternal destiny is compost, then super spiritualism says your eternal destiny is ether. Right? So either you're going to be absorbed into deity, or you're going to go into this weird place away from here that's called heaven, and you're going to be in some spirit form with God. Super spiritualism doesn't say you're just a body. It says, well, really the main thing you are is you're a soul. And then one day you're going to shed your body. Okay. The reason that neither one, neither one of those sits well with us, and we're like, I don't know what it means that I could just eventually be spirit, and I don't, it doesn't feel right that all I am is just a body, is because neither one of those are true. That from Genesis and all the way throughout Scripture, humanity, the human, is an embodied soul. And what death is, is the unnatural act of separating body and soul. And what resurrection is and what redemption is, is the reunion of body and soul. So Jesus physically rose again. This is why John went to great lengths in chapter 20 where Thomas actually touched Jesus, touched the scars. And Jesus said, you need to feel my hands, you need to feel my side where I've been stabbed. In Romans 8.23, Paul says, we await the redemption of our bodies. Resurrection is physical. Here's what this means. You're both body and soul. The reason, if you looked at your friend right now to one side or the other, try to look at somebody and imagine who they are without their face. You're like, no, no, they are their face because you are your body. Now imagine who they are without their stories and their feelings. No, 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 you are your soul too. You are your body and soul. And resurrection, God's plan for redemption, is the restoration of both things. Sanctification is God making our hearts, making our souls right. And resurrection is God making our bodies right. The, body, the Bible doesn't go in-depth describing the resurrection body. Other than this, you meet Jesus and we learn that it's physical and that it looks like Him and that His body was perishable and now it's imperishable. You will be recognizably you. We will, we will look at each other and know who each other are. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Jesus is called the first fruits of resurrection. What happened in the first century is this, is... Now, the first fruit in the harvest is the first things that are harvested that always pretend the great harvest to come, right? It's the first installment, uh, the down payment. It's the guarantee of the resurrection. And when you begin to trust God's love preached in the gospel of the cross, your heart begins to heal, right? Like I'm loved and forgiven. This fills me up. We're healed on the inside. Our souls begin to heal. At the resurrection, Jesus sits there in the middle of history as a beacon proclaiming hope that the, of the assurance that when God is done, our bodies are, will be restored as well. This is what it's like. I shop endlessly on Amazon.com. I keep my wish list well curated if any of y'all ever want to buy me something nice. But when you get the shipping notification from Amazon, right, you get the pat- we've received your order, and then you get the we've shipped your order, and it says your item's shipped. You hang on to that shipping notification. If it's a little bit long, you keep going back to check it over and over again because it says something is yours, but you don't have it yet. The resurrection of Jesus in the middle of history 
is God saying, the resurrection is yours, but we don't have it yet. It's your shipping notification for the resurrection. The res- <laughs> that makes it sound petty, but it's actually awesome, and that's a good illustration. <laughs> the resurrection is physical. That's important. Here's the second thing. Resurrection hope is earthly. And Revelation, uh, or sorry, it's actually earthy. Uh, Revelation 21 John is given this vision of the new heavens and new earth, this place that we're going to live, right? But you've got to look at how he describes it. He describes the new heavens and new earth, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All right, this might be news for some of y'all, but this is actually really important. The Bible never talks about going up to heaven. Uh... It talks about heaven coming down and Jesus coming here and God coming here. The idea of new heavens and new earth is not that there's a different place that you go to. It's this place renewed, made right. It's actually the thing you've been longing for all day, every day of your entire life, which is this place right Everything right. Heaven is being in God's presence. That's why next it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. The new Jerusalem that it talks about is not a geographic city. Listen to it. You know this imagery. Look at the imagery. New Jerusalem, she's a bride. What is the bride of Christ? God's bride all throughout Scripture. It's the image of God's people. The new Jerusalem is a people. It's in our place. The new Jerusalem are God's people, continuing in verse 3, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's the point. Heaven is not up there. It's not spiritual, unphysical elsewhere. The Bible speaks of new heavens and new earth, this place made right. That means there will be economy. There will be inventions. There will be Stanford. There will be landscaping. There will be dirt. There will be ethnicities. There will be culture. There will be music. There will be coffee. and There will be barbecue. And there will be no kale. That's <laughs> what it means. A couple of years ago... Um, I was at, if you ever go to the 8 o'clock service at Menlo Park Prez, it's amazing. If you're like, man, I don't really see elderly people here. That's where they all are. Um, I went there. It's actually really awesome. It's like 600 gray-haired people. And, and like sometimes you need that out here because you don't see a lot of them, right? So if you need your like old people diet, go there. But or John Ortberg got up and he asked this room full of elderly people, he said, how many of you want to go off to a heavenly place and be with God when it's all over. And it was amazing. This room of 500 old Christians, like three or four people raised their hands, and you kind of got the sense they thought everybody was going to raise their hands, and that's the reason they raised. And he said, you know why you don't want to go there? Because that's not what you were made for. And he goes, now how many of you want this world right? Wishes that you could wake up tomorrow and families were healed, and bodies were healed, and cultures were healed, and work worked, and friends were friends, and there were no more secrets, and we didn't hurt each other. And everybody raised their hand. That's the biblical vision of New Heavens and New Earth. It's actually the thing you've been longing for all this time. Everybody has, Christian or not, has been longing for what the Bible describes as New Heavens and New Earth, God's plan for redemption. One of my girls, we've all worried that like heaven might be boring, right? You've had this feeling of like, ah, I don't, is there going to be Netflix? Because I don't know what I'm going to do with all that time. And one of my girls asked me that question. And I said, 
Mary Walton, this is the way you need to think about it. Think about the time you've been happiest in this life, the most full. Think about when you felt the most you, when you felt no insecurity, and you felt no lurking shame, and you were surrounded with friends and family, and there was laughter, and there was great food, and there was mutual enjoyment, and there was no exclusion. The times when when work was delightful and fascinating, when you were so confident in the reality that you were loved that you never thought to wonder, am I liked? Am I likable? Am I lovable? In those times, things were so good, you actually didn't think in self-calculating terms all the time of how you're going to benefit. Right? And you actually began to think about wanting good for others, not because you're trying to be a good person, but because the natural outworking of someone who's so sure that they're loved is that you actually stop thinking about yourself and you organically enjoy seeking the well-being of others. You actually invest your life into the joy of others. And you forget to think about yourself. I was like, Mary, those little tiny moments, right? We don't get many of those. Those are little tastes. That's what your imagination is supposed to feed on in order to understand Revelation 21. In order to understand new heavens and new earth. So that is the hope. You will be you, not just some spirit, not compost, but also this world will be this world, and it will all be right. And the resurrection is the shipping notification in the middle of history, the first fruits, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So let's talk for a couple of minutes then about the life that is shaped by that resurrection hope. If you began to think that way, that I don't know when and I don't know how, but the resurrection in the middle of history tells us God is making all things new and you begin to keep that shipping notification in your life's email inbox, checking it periodically, saying, I don't know when and I don't know how, but all things will be made well. How does that change us? Here's the first thing it does. It saves us from our wins. Right? We have wins in this life. There are wins, good things, right? Things, situations and times when life goes really, really well. And we have the, but the hope of the resurrection actually saves us from how we relate to our wins and our dreamt of potential wins, right? The wins that are right around the corner that we might in, in actually achieve, right? Here's what it does to them. It puts them in perspective. Because this is how we all are tempted to feel all the time. That there's this mythical horizon of circumstances right around the corner, right? Right, I, I'm so close. And if I can just get there, my soul will be satisfied. But that's a lie. Believing... I just haven't gotten quite to the omnicompetent, just perfect cocktail of life circumstances, whether it's work, relationships, romance, family, uh, stuff, and I'm almost there. And if that lie consumes you, your whole life will be a tragic pursuit of a myth, something empty, something hollow. Resurrection hope is actually out there saying to you, Don't aim your resurrection hope at the things that moth and rust destroy. The things that death will take from you. And the resurrection is not a killjoy. It doesn't take away, actually, the joy of the wins you get in life. Right? There's a good chance you're going to graduate and get a good job coming out of Stanford. That's a win. That's good. You should rejoice in that. It doesn't take away the joy of good times. What it says is, don't settle for the joy of good times. Don't think that that's all there is. 
those things that are a pale imitation of resurrection life. And the truth is, our souls know that. Right? We've all experienced the disappointment after winning. What resurrection hope does is actually tempers your wins. And that's the difference between foolishness and wisdom. Wisdom is perspective. Wisdom is the ability to see further ahead and further back than the present moment and place that present moment in its proper context. Right? My girls, uh, being a parent, y'all hear me talk about this all the time, is, it's awesome, it's so sweet. The oldest girls are 12 right now, so they still think I'm a superhero. It's about to get complicated. But this is a win season in my life. I'm really happy. And uh, what's happening is, and I think this is what Resurrection Hope does, is Resurrection Hope, but also reality at some point, tells you, man, I'm really happy, but I know it's not going to last. And so true, honest happiness is happy-sad. I'm really, really happy with my girls right now. I'm really, really sad because I know they won't have me always and I won't have them always. And the happier I get, the more scared I get of the sadness ahead of us, right? When the resurrection becomes the thing in my imagination that's held out before us, here's what I do as a parent, right? When I put my happy sadness with them in the context of the resurrection, I talk to them more about Jesus. I hug them a whole lot more. I think more about their character and their virtue than I do about their soccer and their schoolwork. And I care less about my status in the killer Menlo parent social scene. When I forget Jesus, when I forget about the resurrection, I overparent, I hug less, I feel more anxiety, I talk a lot more about soccer and school, and I feel really socially insecure around the other parents. Resurrection hope will actually save you from your wins. It'll introduce proper sadness into your wins. And without resurrection perspective, your circumstances dominate you, create more anxiety, not more sadness, but more anxiety. And when then we end up looking and acting like everyone else, caught up in everything, living in fear of the consequences if we don't play the game. But with resurrection hope, you experience the freedom in Jesus to live differently. And you realize putting your resurrection hope in winning is slavery, but putting your resurrection hope in Jesus, you realize holiness is the true freedom. So it saves us from our wins, but this is the other thing it does. It saves us from our losses. If you aim your resurrection hope at anything less than resurrection, your losses will eventually win over you. And we've all notched a few losses, and we all know we're going to notch some more. Right? Some vocational losses. Failure in competence or failure in character in your vocation, right, as a student, but also in work one day. Some relational losses, rejection by friends or boyfriend or girlfriend hurt by parents, or maybe you've been the bad person in the relationship. Some personal losses, some moral failures, right, we're all dealing with. Physical losses, right, some pain in our body, some of which we hope to get over, some of which we might never get over. And when we begin to contemplate all of our losses, it feels like they might swallow us up whole. Because here's, kind of like I said earlier, here's what's ahead of you in life, more losses. There are going to be some wins too. But you're not going to bat a thousand from here on out. You didn't figure it out today and you won't figure it out tomorrow. But the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of resurrection in Jesus comes along and it says two things. First of all, it says this to all of our losses. It's worse than you think. 
Your biggest problem is actually not that today your hypocrisy was exposed or you weren't the person you intended to be. No, the biggest problem is that we actually have sinned against the love of our Creator. We've taken His beautiful creation and we've used it and abused it for ourselves and we're morally culpable for a lot of sad in this world. All of us are. The more convinced that you're not culpable for a lot of sad in this world, the more dangerous you are as a person. And here's the reality. When this life ends for all of us, you're going to leave some good. You're going to leave some legacy of good. Everybody in this room will leave a little bit of legacy of good. Here's the other thing. We're all going to leave a legacy of sad, too. We're all going to leave some legacy of bad. You know how you don't like your parents? And and for just reasons, do you know your children are going to feel that way about you? Are you prepared for that moment? The only way to not be your parents is to grieve the fact that you're exactly like them. That you're going to bring sad, too, into this world. And God grieves and hates that all of us are going to have legacies of sadness because he loves this world so much. And resurrection says things are worse than you think, but it simultaneously says true hope is better than you think. The resurrection also says that God goes into death on our behalf and conquers it on our behalf. Resurrection hope is the only thing that can keep our losses from killing us, from leading us to despair. The reason that our worship isn't always full, kind of in our personal experience of it, is rarely actually because there's anything wrong with the music. We're quick to jump to the music of like, oh, are you if they play that bluegrassy style or whatever it is? Uh, like, yes, there's a good chance it's going to be all gospel choir style music in the new heavens and new earth. There's the compelling argument for that, but. Most often the reason that your personal experience and my personal experience of worship is not this kind of sense of fullness is because our imaginations have been too scared to imagine the goodness of the resurrection. To imagine... I mean, I love the fact that Revelation, this passage ends with, write this down, these things are trustworthy and true. What things? There's going to be, I will wipe away every tear... Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, and the former things have passed away. The resurrection says sadness doesn't win. And so Paul finishes his great passage in 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection with, Therefore, because sadness doesn't win, be steadfast, you can be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord... Uh, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. All your labor is in vain if the resurrection is not true, but if Jesus rose again, all those in him will be with him, and you can endure anything. The losses do not win. Last point, how does it shape us? It saves us from our wins, it saves us from our losses, and it gives our whole life a worthy ambition. It gives your entire life a worthy ambition. Uh, one of the things that's awesome about Stanford, and it's why most of you came here, is because it's a place of incredible passion and ambition, right? And you're, you're around all these driven people, and y'all are all driven people. And there's something in you, right? There's this experience. There's something in you that's alive that wants to direct all of your energy towards something amazing. That's right. That's good. God made you that way. And for a year or two, and y'all have heard me say this before, I've been fascinated by the phrase a high schooler uh, uh, wrote about 
or used when she wrote about the, the pressure of kind of achievement culture around here. And she said, we all have insincere passion. And that phrase has kind of captivated me for two years because what she was getting at is that we have this desire to achieve and to be ambitious and to have passion, right? But sometimes it's hard to feel like what you're seeking and pouring your life into is like something deeply worthy. And what happens is you sense that passion is central to being human. You want an outlet for that passion that seems epic in the right way. But you haven't found anything worthy of it. And so you start to try to convince yourself that this one opportunity you found is worth it. And what you know when you're kind of explaining this opportunity to yourself but also to others is that you're trying to nurse an insincere passion. And so you make little justifications along the way until you end up in a job that doesn't really kind of fill out that passion or give you a place to fully express it. But it can give you a nice life and it can get you kind of approval and acceptance by others. And you can, you can find yourself finally seeking relationships that don't make your heart explode with forgiveness and joy, but they can make you feel good about yourself for a little while and then when they stop making you feel good about yourself, you can cut them off. And so our guiding principle at the end of the day, when we don't find a place to direct that passion to something truly noble, We end up making those little justifications for an insincere passion and insincere personally kind of self-oriented relationships until our ethic and our way of life is this, do what you want as long as no one gets hurt and you always get consent. And that's what drives us. It's just that and nothing else. And so we're left with the hollowness of nice things, comfort, and nice reputations. We wanted something more, but that was our consolation prize. Here's the mission of the church. The resurrection gives you a worthy ambition. The mission of the church is to advertise new heavens and new earth in every sphere of life. It doesn't just talk. Vocation is actually not the only place that you're supposed to direct that passion. If everlasting life is heaven coming down to earth, right? That's the way John talked about it. Then we're called, God's people are called to be practitioners of heaven here and now. That's why Peter calls the church a holy priesthood. He's using the Old Testament imagery. A priest is someone who mediates God's presence to the world around him. And it's also, it talks about us together, not you individually, that we together as a community, not individually, in in 2 Corinthians 6.16, are called the temple of the living God. The temple is the place of God's presence in this world. That means the people of God are actually practitioners of heaven. What would this world be like? What will it be like with God present here and everything right? Well, we practice that for each other before the world. There's nothing more worthy to be passionate about or ambitious about to, because of the great love with which God has loved us to embody His love to one another and to our neighbors. That's why the Lord's Prayer is, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that look like? A few notes we're, and then we're done. Because it involves far more than your professional pursuit, far more than your vocation. It looks like lives shaped by grace. That's the first one. You live in God's grace, and you live a life actually emanating His grace, that we bring our sin and our shortcoming to Him in repentance and in confession, and we live confidently knowing that Jesus has taken it away at the cross, that our guilt weighs on us no more. But then you seek to live a life of being unearned blessing to others. 
Direct your passion to being unearned blessing to others. That means you seek the well-being and the joy of all kinds of people, not just to your tribe or your type of people or people who you like the politics of, and not even to people who deserve it, but you actually intentionally become an undeserved blessing even to enemies. That you actually seek, you actually long that the world, the watching world be confounded by your kindness to the undeserving, by our kindness to the undeserving. So we live lives shaped by grace. We live lives shaped by holiness. That we actually begin to love God's law. Because our imagination is alighted with the vision of a world ordered by His love. So that means we tell the truth. Even though the world says, hey, there's some things you should lie on for personal benefit. No, we actually learn to love the truth. We seek chastity even when the world tries to separate sexuality and covenant. You seek rest even when the world says, work for your justification. But we actually begin to live lives that are shaped by holiness. We begin to live lives that are for this place. Right? Resurrection hope is earthy. You've heard maybe this saying, Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But it's the opposite. If you believe this place is all there is and that one day you will be compost, then we treat each other like compost. Right? Make me happy today. If on the other hand, God is making all things new, if he's making this place new, then we love this place. We seek the well-being of the community around us, seek the well-being of the physical place. We make decisions based on the timeline of a longer story of hope, not foolishly seeking pleasure now, but sowing seeds of flourishing for eternity. So we live a life shaped by grace, lives shaped by holiness, lives for this place, and lastly, lives of worship. Fullness, life everlasting. Revelation 4 and 5, if you begin to read those, they always end with a woohoo. You know, the Bible ends with a woohoo. Uh, a woohoo is a term of worship, right? Worship is the thing that we long to do the most. When you think about your wins in life, you associate some woohoos with those moments, right? I have 16 wins, well, not 16 wins in my life, but 16 wins. Alabama, 16 national championships, y'all wear this. That's 16 big woohoos for me, right? Worship is the thing we long to do the most, to actually sing the praise of the great things in our life and the great moments in our life. The hope of the resurrection is so graciously and so fully meets all of our deepest and eternal longings, it produces the richest and fullest woohoo. Go home and read Revelation 4 later tonight. And read it, and if you read it, the imagery is really, really complex. And if you start trying to track with the imagery in Revelation 4, Revelation 4 is a picture of worship in the throne room of heaven. And this is what will happen to you, is the imagery will be so rich and so complex, your imagination will fall short. You realize, oh, I can't continue to imagine what's going on here. It's too complex, there's too many details, it's too radical, it's too rich. You can't imagine it. That's the point. The point when you read it is to find that your own ability to imagine this worship is too limited. That's what's supposed to happen when you read it. It's overwhelming, and you understand that it's a woo-hoo beyond your greatest imagination. But even here and now, we're still a community of worship, even in our small-minded imagination of all things new. So here's the question before us all. Before us all, all the time. Uh, Will you let the resurrection of Jesus 
minister to your imagination and your belief about the future? Will you hear the testimony of witnesses? And we are all forgetters. All of us are. So we have to hear and go back to the testimony of the witnesses over and over again that in Jesus, your heart is restored to God and that in Jesus, you are sealed for the resurrection. And that the Christian life is now learning to obey God's word, to honor his promises, to live and love in a manner that brings joy to the one who saved us and brings joy to the one with whom we will be reunited. What future are you living for? Let's pray.